great to keep that open and let's pray as we uh, come to think about it. Our Father God, we uh, do thank you so much for Luke's Gospel written to give us certainty into the things and work of Jesus. And we pray that you would do that this morning. Please make us sure of who he is and that we would therefore respond to him rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday I walked into a tree. I'm glad I'm stood up and you're sat down so you can't see the damage it did to my head. Uh, but my faith, I was playing cricket with my, my, my son and I went to pick up the ball. And my, my faith in my spatial awareness was misplaced. Much more tragically, uh, again in the news uh, this week, the, the footballer Salah, who put his faith in a pilot and a plane, and you've seen in the news how that turned out. Every day we put our faith probably in hundreds of things. You're doing it now. You have faith that the chair you're sat in is going to hold you up. Chairs, cars, beds, doctors, bankers, train drivers. We, we put our faith in many things and many people each and every day. Have faith in Jesus. That is something that we hear again and again and again, and I pray that you'll hear it again and again and again at Lionstown Church. Have faith in Jesus. That is the saving message, the saving call of the Bible. How do we know, though, that having faith in Jesus is faith well-placed? How do we know that that is a good and a right place to have our trust? And what does it mean to have that faith? Well, that's what these two encounters that we're going to look at this morning are going to help us with. Last week, or last two weeks, we saw the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus teaching his disciples, apostles, disciples, and the crowds. And then having finished that sermon, chapter 7 through 8 are Jesus travelling to different towns and villages and teaching and healing. And as he does so, again and again, we're going to be kind of seeing, answering the question of, well, who is this Jesus? Who is he? And he starts off in Capernaum and and, and name with these two encounters with two individuals. Now, regularly in the Bible, in the Gospels, we hear of uh, the crowds, the disciples, marveling at Jesus. When they hear his teaching, when they see something he does, they marvel at him. Twice in the Bible, two times, two encounters, Jesus is said to marvel at others. The first time is in his hometown of Nazareth when he marvels at the people's unbelief. He is amazed at their lack of faith. The second time he marvels is here this morning as he marvels at the faith of a Gentile soldier. So here, kind of the the overarching theme, true faith. And if you have a look down at chapter 7, verse 9, hear what Jesus says. When Jesus heard these things, that's something that the centurion said. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowds that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marveled at this man because of his faith. And such was his surprise and, and uh, admiration that Jesus draws the attention of the crowd. Like he says, look, look everyone, see this faith. And, and as he does that, it's a real challenge. Because those crowds, 
pretty much would have been Jews. And he says, look, in Israel, amongst Jewish people, I've not seen faith like this from a Gentile. And so he holds out this centurion as an example and a challenge to the crowds. And he holds it out for us today as an example and a challenge for us too. This is the kind of faith that Jesus wants. So what kind of faith is it? Well, let's have a look as we go through it. And we're going to learn four things from the centurion. First off, true faith knows that Jesus saves. True faith knows that Jesus saves. Well, let's see what was going on. Come back to verse 2 now. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Okay, so we have a Roman soldier, a centurion, somebody who'd been in charge of about 100 other soldiers. And this man had a servant who he valued. Now, that can just mean kind of he was useful, but it can also be translated as kind of precious. So he cares about this, this valuable, useful servant. And the servant situation is serious. Luke, the doctor, tells us, look, he's on the point of death. And so, verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servants. What this centurion had heard about Jesus, we don't know. But he'd heard enough to know that Jesus could come and do something about this. And so he asked the elders, these would be the kind of like civic leaders, not the religious leaders, the kind of civic leaders, to go to Jesus, to kind of ask Jesus to come and heal. He asked Jesus to come and heal this man. Again, that word heal can be translated save. Carries the idea of bringing someone through an ordeal. Whatever the centurion had heard, he knew that Jesus was able to save. And so he sends the elders to go and ask them to send Jesus to him. True faith knows that Jesus saves and therefore goes to him. Secondly, true faith recognises that they are unworthy, the person is unworthy. So this centurion was, was a powerful man. He, he could ask the, the Jewish leaders to, to go And it doesn't seem, though, that they they took too much persuasion. Because have a look at verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he, the centurion, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. The centurion, although powerful and influential, he doesn't use his status to oppress and kind of uh, use others for his own advantage. No, no, he loves this nation, very unlike most of the Roman soldiers. He's generous with his wealth. He is what, I think, is described elsewhere uh, in the Bible as a God-fearer. So not one of the Jews, not one of the Jewish God's people, but yet he feared God. And their summary of that is he's worthy. He's worthy. That, that word again is the idea of uh, used in connection with wages. He has earned it. He deserves it. You work, if you work this week and this month, you get a paycheck. You deserve that. You are worthy of that. You've earned it. And that is how the elders view this man. And so at the elders' request, Jesus sets off. But before Jesus 
arrives. The centurion sends another delegation. And hear his words compared to the elders' words. Have a look at verse 6. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends to him. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. They say he's worthy. The man himself says, I'm not worthy. Interesting, he uses a different word for worthy, but it, that's what it means. It's a word that can be used in kind of measurements. And basically what he's saying is, look, I'm not sufficient. I'm, I'm lacking. I've not got enough. But worthiness is a... If you think about it, kind of worthiness doesn't happen in, in a vacuum, as it were. It, worthiness is always related to someone or something else. And the man says here, look, I'm not worthy, not just generally, I'm not worthy to have you, Jesus, in my house. In fact, he doesn't even go to the man, Jesus to say it. He literally sends friends and says, look, I'm not worthy. So it's something, again, that he knows of Jesus, that he says, no, compared to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you here. Let me kind of give you another example. It's been a big week with tennis, you know, high-profile people retiring. Um, you know, I could be down at Oak Hill Park play, playing a game of tennis, and I'd be like, yeah, I'm pretty good, so I'm, I'm all right. One of these two comes down to the park to play with me. Now, I'm not worthy to be on the same court as them. They're just a different level, different league. And it's the same thing here with the centurion, with Jesus. Now, compared to Jesus, he is utterly unworthy. Yes, he might be a good man. Yes, he might love Israel. Yes, he might have been generous with his wealth, building them their meeting place. But compared to Jesus, he is not worthy. The elders, no, they, they say he's worthy. But he says, no, I am unworthy. And this is drawn out in what he says next. And here's the kind of third thing we see of faith. True faith knows the authority of Jesus. See verse 7. Uh, he's, the, uh, he's carrying on the centurion's words. Verse 7, he says, Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, this is the statement that Jesus, in verse 9, says, uh, that marvels at. Okay, so th- this is the, the, the key and core to it. And here, Jesus, uh, the centurion, declares his trust in the authority and the power of Jesus and his words. Did you notice that? He said, look, say the word. You say the word, such as your authority and power, you just declare it and it will happen again we don't know how much of a systematic theology this man could have written probably not much but despite the fact there was an awful lot he didn't know there was something he did know and that was Jesus' authority his power the centurion himself and that's what he says there he was this Roman soldier so he was used he was himself under authority and he was also in authority. So he would say to his soldiers, look, go, and off they would go. He would say, come, and then they would come. He knew what authority was all about. And as such, he recognised that authority in Jesus. 
He knew his authority was, was like that even more. And then finally, building on those things, true faith entrusts themselves into his hands. That's what the centurion does with his servants. This is why he has gone to Jesus in the first place. First place. His, his servant was at the point of death. There was nowhere else to turn. There was nothing else could be done. But he knows that Jesus has the authority to, to save. He knows that Jesus has that power. And so he entrusts the servant to him. He says, Jesus, say the words and he will be healed. Let my servant be healed. The centurion knows that Jesus saves. The the centurion recognises that he himself is unworthy, but has authority. That but Jesus has authority. And therefore he entrusts his servant into his hands. And Jesus marvels. He marvels at this faith and says, Not in Israel have I seen such faith. And sure enough, Jesus saves, Jesus heals the man, verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. They found the servant well. Now this is key. Okay, Jesus is commending this man's faith. He is holding this man's faith out as a challenge and an example to us. But... The centurion is not the hero of this story. Jesus is. The centurion simply recognises who Jesus is. Uh, J.C. Ryle, the great um, uh, bishop of yesteryear, he, he in his commentary says, this is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. Now, I don't think we want to get into that game of which one's the best or whatever. But you can see why he said it, can't you? Jesus wasn't even with the centurion. He didn't lay hands on the centurion. He didn't speak to the the centurion servant. He didn't um, even look at him. He wasn't even there. And Jesus healed the man. It is a remarkable miracle. Jesus is the one with the saving power. The centurion simply recognises that. What the centurion knew about Jesus was right. He does save, even unworthy... He does have unmatched authority and is a safe place for us to entrust ourselves. True faith, Jesus says about this centurion. What about, what about you? What about me? I guess the first and starting point is how do you view yourself? Whether it is shampoo adverts or Hollywood or well-meant teachers, we're told again and again and again, you are worthy. You are worthy. And that's how religion operates. That's how the the Jewish leaders thought and how religion today works. If you avoid the really bad things and if you are loving enough to other people and you do good enough things to others, then you are well good enough for God. You are worthy. That's how religion operates. Now we heed the example of the centurion. Look, if anyone was worthy, it was him. He was successful, powerful, yet caring and generous. And he feared God. If anyone was worthy of Jesus' attention, it was him. And yet he knows that when it came to Jesus, he was not worthy. 
So an un- unwor- a feeling of unworthiness, a sense of our unworthiness is a, is a good place to, for us to be. But don't miss this next step. Because I think sometimes that right feelings of unworthiness can, can lead to wrong results. When we are very much aware of our unworthiness before the Lord Jesus, it, it can lead us to kind of step back from him, to, to kind of shrink away. Lord, I, I, I'm not worthy and kind of stop praying and stop spending time with him but but don't miss the fact that the the unworthiness of this servant didn't stop him from going to Jesus we are as it were to, to look at Jesus which makes us see our unworthiness we are then to look at Jesus again because as we look at Jesus again we see that actually he doesn't exclude the unworthy Jesus, uh, later in the gospel, we'll read this uh, of him. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. No, being unworthy doesn't disqualify us from Jesus' attention. So as we look at Jesus, we see our, our unworthiness, and we look at him again, and we see actually that's a good place to be, because he came to seek and save the unworthy, the lost. See, faith recognises that he came to seek and save the lost by, by dying for all those things which make us unworthy. Faith recognises that actually there's, there's nowhere else to turn, that when we feel unworthy before him, well, that is a thing to drive us to him, not away from him. And we can indeed entrust our lives to him. But maybe you're still not sure. Maybe you're not sure about this. Well, well let's see the second encounter. And here we see that true true faith is in the compassionate Saviour. Jesus and his disciples, they they, um, travel, and the crowds travel to a town called Nain. Uh, They think it's about 25 miles away. And in verse 12, we pick up the reading here. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. It's a, it's a sadly typical scene. Uh, in those days, this is what funerals would look like. Likely this man would have died that morning because they would have had quick burials. And there's this large group of mourners who have gathered together for the funeral. It's a typical scene. It's a tragic scene, isn't it? This woman has lost her son. Unbearable pain. For her. And also, not simply and only the pain, as bad as that was, she'd also lost any sense of security she had. Did you notice she was a widow? And in those days, now that no welfare state, she had no one to care for her. Not, not the government, no family members. In her old age, she would have been in a terrible place. It's a tragic scene. But I think verse 13 ranks among the sweetest in Scripture. Verse 13, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. You see that progression? He he saw her. He saw the pain. He saw her. He had compassion. And he said, He saw her. He noticed her, her plight and her pain. He had compassion. That passion is depth of feeling, a churn, internal churning. He is deeply moved by what he sees. And the gentlest of words to her. 
do not weep. Those wonderful things, good for us to remember in the midst of our sorrow. The Lord sees. The Lord has compassion. The Lord speaks. But compassion is, is no help at all, really, if he can't do anything about it. Okay, a six-year-old child might have compassion at their, their, their parents who is going through um, fun, real financial struggles or a medical crisis. A six-year-old child might have great compassion on their parents, but they can't do anything about it. But not so with Jesus. When he says, don't weep, he means it because he follows up. Verse 14. Then he came up, to, came up and touched Tobiah, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Here's another test of the authority of Jesus' word. To say that, and for nothing to happen, would be revealed as very silly, worse as a fraud. But, no, verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Again, in Old Testament terms, under the Old Testament law, by touching the buyer, he would have become ceremonially unclean. But Jesus isn't contaminated or corrupted by death. Rather, he conquers it. He touches, he speaks, and the man is raised. You see, Jesus' compassion is matched by his power. At his word, the dead are raised. And the woman has her son and her security restored. Do you see how this builds on what happened with the centurion? With the centurion, Jesus was able to save somebody who was on the point of death. That's remarkable. That's amazing. Incredible. But actually, even here, this is greater. He's able to save someone who has passed through death. You see, what Jesus ultimately came to save from is death. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, death has been this, this, this figure on the, the horizon that gets ever and ever closer for every single individual. But those with faith in Jesus look at death differently. Not with crippling fear or hopeless despair. Sadness, yes, but actually knowing that Jesus, the compassionate Saviour, has power even over death. And how? Why? Well, he's proved it by raising this man. But more importantly, he proved it by going through death himself and then rising again three days later. Jesus, the compassionate Saviour, has all power even over death. Quite understandably, this, this causes quite a stir. Verse 16 Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. They fear that, that response of being in God's presence, that they fear seized them, and they glorified God, recognizing that something super impressive has happened. They, they're not incorrect here, but they are limited in their understanding. 
They think this is a great prophet because back in the Old Testament, both Elijah and Elisha had raised dead people. And they thought, oh, this, this is clearly a prophet. They don't get the full picture. It's incomplete, but they do see Jesus' greatness. They do recognise, indeed, that God has visited his people. Well, faith. Have faith in the Lord Jesus. That is well-placed faith. Well-placed faith in the Lord Jesus actually knows that we are unworthy before him, that we are not deserving of his saving work, but knows that he can save, that he has power, authority to save. True faith entrusts ourselves to him, even to bring us through death, because he has gone through death himself and risen again. It is well, well placed faith. True faith in the compassionate Saviour. Maybe you indeed have this faith that you've trusted in the Lord Jesus for a long, long time. Well, here's a reminder that we can have certainty in that faith. Our faith is in a good place to keep it there. Maybe you've never done that. In a few moments, I'm going to put a prayer up on the screen based on kind of what we've heard here. And I encourage you to pray along in your heart with me this simple prayer of faith, of trust in the Lord Jesus. I say, whether you've done that a million times, it's a good thing to pray along to as well. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm not worthy to come into your presence. But thank you that by your death and resurrection, you save even from death. I trust in you and your saving work. Amen. Amen. If you have prayed that for the first time, I would encourage you to tell someone, speak to me or the person who brought you. We'd love love to help you think through how you can get to know this Jesus better. 